I believe every word is true. And it is all that I need. Yeah. And that is one big door key to do that, is it? Not one bit, no. So, Daniel chapter 3 tonight. And, okay, where did, we, where did we come from last week? I mean, last week was all pretty much about Daniel. And, and um, you know, and we, we talked at length about heart condition and how that you know, that's, that's why Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel were so extraordinarily different. You know, what makes a person behave? It's their, their heart condition. And we watch Nebuchadnezzar, who, who is just, you know, beside himself, even though he's the most famous, the most powerful. He is in charge of the whole world. You know, Babylon was the one world order at the time. And he was the leader of the one world order. And yet, he is not at peace with himself. But no one is, because if they haven't met the Prince of Peace, if they don't know the Prince of Peace, then they're not going to have peace. And, you know, whether he's insecure, whether he's afraid someone's going to take his throne away from him, whatever the deal is, he is just he is just not in a good place. And so he can't sleep, and he has these dreams. And, and so he calls his smarty pants together, and, and no, they can't interpret it. They don't know what the dream is. And, and so, you know, no man on earth, they say, can possibly tell you um, what your dream is. We don't, we're not inside your head. We don't know. So, you know, then, you know, he is going to destroy all the wise men of the land. And, and then, you know, Arioch, you know, that message gets out and Daniel hears about it and he knows his God. Remember, he's still young and yet he's got such a huge huge faith. He just knows his God so well. And he just has the confidence that, that the Lord will give him that answer to this mystery. And so he tells Ariaco, you tell, tell him that I will come and, and I, will, I will tell him his dream and, and interpret it. And so Ariac, of course, he's thrilled. He can't wait to go and tell him, oh, there's somebody. There's one of those Hebrew young men that can do that. And so, you know, he's all pumped and Nebuchadnezzar is ready for the answer. And so the Nebuchadnezzar says, oh, so you've got the answer for me, right? And remember last week how... No, no. And, and, you know, all I could think about was poor Ariok. His head probably just, I don't believe this, you know. And, and Nebuchadnezzar is ready to just, you know, cut them into pieces. And, and, you know, Daniel goes on and says, what you're asking is impossible for any human. No, I don't have that. I mean, he admitted it. I don't have that kind of power. But there is God, the one God in heaven, who, who will do this for you. And then he went on to tell him what the dream was. And he said, and now I'm able to do this, not because I'm so, so smart, but it's because, because God wants you to know what the future holds. He wants you to be aware. He wants you to be prepared. He wants you to be warned. So this is why he's given me the ability so you are ready for what is to come. He said, um, I'm sure you now recognize, as I tell you, that there was this huge, awesome statue. And this statue was, was um, made first, the head was out of gold, and then it went lower to silver. And, and he said, and then, and then went lower to iron and clay. 
And he said, and then there was this huge statue, and then out of the mountain, without man helping, this rock comes. This rock just appears, and it smashes that statue to the point of it, it is just dust, so fine that the wind can just sweep it away. So here, the, here this statue once stood so huge and strong and awesome and incredible and all those words, and yet that rock comes and smashes it to pieces. He said, Nebuchadnezzar, this is what it means. The, the different parts of the statue are different kingdoms. And you, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the, the ruler of the world right now, and you're the head, and you are out of gold. And, you know, I'm going to stop there a second because I think that's when Nebuchadnezzar's ears turned all he Because the very, net, you know, when we go into this chapter today, you know, all he knows is that he's the head, and his head is made out of gold. And so now he's thinking, well, let's just build a whole statue out of gold and let it be all of me. And I don't think he even really absorbed the fact that, that this was a warning, that this was the future. You know, and so when Daniel was saying that, you know, your kingdom will end after 66 years, your kingdom will end and then the next empire will come. The Medo-Persian empire will come. And they will, they will last for a couple hundred, almost a couple hundred years. And, and then, then the Greek empire will come after that. And they'll last another couple hundred years. And then the Roman empire will take over. And they will last 500 years. But believe it or not, as powerful as all those kingdoms are, Daniel says, the Lord will destroy up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It will always last. It will never be ruined. And so, you know, that was the, you know, such a prophecy for us, such a, such a, a, a word of hope for us that we know what our future is. And we remember Daniel is all about learning um, the story of Daniel and learning how these four young Hebrew men were able to live their lives in exile under this kind of pressure. I mean, this is not when they were little boys. I'm sure they didn't intend to have to live under Babylonian rule for, for their lives. You know, what a lesson for us today when you think about how many times we live our lives in disappointment and surprises and um, this isn't what we expected out of life. And sometimes people have to, I think of one um, friend of ours whose daughter um, had muscular dystrophy or, or some muscle disorder and she got it when she was a young woman and she has lived her whole life in a wheelchair you know, and so you, you wonder, there sometimes like Johnny Erickson, did she ever, did you think she ever thought that she would live most of her life, you know, after her, her, her accident in her teens? You know, did she expect to live her life in a wheelchair and disabled? You know, sometimes we have our lives just, you know, it didn't go the way we thought, and Daniel and these three men are really showing us such a valuable lesson is that we can either choose to crumble and feel sorry for ourselves and find no worth 
I mean, I always say that about Fanny Crosby, too. I mean, you know, she is just one of my heroes. I mean, here this poor woman in, as a baby was, was a mis, misdiagnosed and, you know, her eyes were burnt. And, and, you know, at such a young, you know, at a baby already, she was blinded. And, and, and you know what, she could have just so given up. And when she grew up and it wasn't like any of the other kids, and there wasn't Braille back in the 1800s. And, you know, she just had a grandma who taught her scripture, you know. They probably didn't have many toys. And but with such value that, you know, she, by the time she even realized what happened to her, she was so into the Lord's will. And we're going to get into that tonight. God's good, pleasing, perfect will. And even though it might not be our good and pleasing, perfect will, it's his. And are we going to trust him enough? You know, this whole, this whole idea of Daniel, if you get anything out of it all, is that our God was sovereign then. He was involved in all of these stories. He was involved even in Nebuchadnezzar. He was involved in Arioch. He was involved. He was making things happen. God is always involved. So then and now, our God is sovereign. He is overall and in all and through all. And I'll tell you, the quicker we really comprehend that, the more we'll relax, no matter what's happening. And to think that God is in everything. That's why it's just such a beautiful story that we should take hold of now and then to know that our future is so secure and he will be sovereign and he will be in it all. So, but anyway, now we left. Um, we left uh, Nebuchadnezzar putting Daniel in a quite a high position, and he even Daniel even asked about his three friends, and they got put into high positions. So that's where we left him last week. They're they're in a high place within the palace, working for the king. But being such a testimony, no matter where you are, no matter what's happening to you, are you showing forth Jesus? Are, is your testimony, is your story that you trust him despite it all? So now we move into tonight's lesson. And sure, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high. So you get an idea well, what 90 feet is. It's eight stories. So you have an eight-story building. So he erected a, a statue made out of gold that was eight stories high, nine feet wide. And he set it in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the other officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. Now, remember how big this one world order is. I mean, it's, it's a lot of nations. It's a lot of languages. And so what he did was, first of all, um, invite all the leaders, because even, you know, um, he distinguished, you know, satraps, um, prefects. They all had their they all had their separate ruling. They were specific official rulers, and he invited all the rulers of these nations to come together. So that alone had to be a grand grand number. And so what he did was, you come and you you we will all dedicate this image. 
And so they all came, and they assembled for the dedication in verse 3, and that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald, then the herald loudly proclaimed. So Nebuchadnezzar had someone, you know, who probably had a great booming voice. He heralded out the command. And he said, this is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear this sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Now, did you catch the words, command, and you must? So there was no choice in the matter. This was what they had to do. When you hear these instruments, now I don't know what all these instruments sound like, but I would dare say that they were professionals, and it was like our symphony, and it probably was majestic, and when people heard that sound, they knew to fall to the great King Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, this guy, you know, I don't he thought he was sovereign. He thought he was God. He thought that no one could compare with him. I mean, how sad is that? You know, whenever you whenever you start getting self-absorbed, that is so ugly. That is so pitiful. And nothing good happens when we become self-absorbed. When it's all about me. Do you know that when we portray selfishness, selfishness will cause division. Selfishness will cause an unforgiving spirit. Selfishness will cause broken relationships. Yeah, selfishness will cause anger and hatred and bitterness. See, nothing good happens when we start thinking only about ourselves. So you know that this story is not going to go right. And yet God is in it. And yet he is going to show his power just like he did in chapter 2. He's going to show there is no power greater. His power is even greater than a fiery furnace. So now here we go. So when they were to hear this this music, they were to, they must fall down and bow and bow gently. Nebuchadnezzar, whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. That's that's quite a powerful threat. I mean, who, you know, if you don't do it, I'm commanding you, and you must. And if you don't, there's a punishment. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of all those instruments, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And at this time, at this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. Now, I probably wouldn't have thought too much about it except that word astrologers as some somehow we were supposed to know that it was these astrologers that came forward 
and they denounced the Jews. They said, King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of all those instruments must fall down and worship the image of gold. And, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing fire furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Oh, there is no question in my mind now as I thought that through. I thought I went back to chapter 2. Remember when I said that Nebuchadnezzar, you know, he's all troubled and he can't, he, he doesn't know why he's, his, he's having these dreams and all this kind of thing. And, and so who does he call? He calls the magician, the encanters, the sorcerers, and the astrologers. I knew I'd read that word before. And I thought, of course, it's jealousy. You aren't kidding. It is jealousy. You know, they probably got together and they see, you know, because how, how are they going to know amongst all these hundreds and thousands of people? How are they going to know that these three men are not bowing down? They had to be, they had to set their sights on those three. They had to, they had to have an agenda. And they did. They had an agenda. They, they probably got together and said, you know, this just isn't right. You know, those four Hebrews, those young little snotty-nosed kids, they just come in here and they just take over. And they are taking over and getting our positions and our prizes. And let's get them out of here. Let's get them out of here. So, you know, there's no doubt the way human nature works. There's no doubt that these, that these astrologers nailed them, squealed on them. So furious with rage. See, this is what happens when you are self-consumed and something doesn't go your way. You blow a gasket. And he is furious. He summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true? Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods, little g, or worship the image of gold I've set up? I mean, he, he didn't just take the word of the astrologers. I think he, he came, to, brought, had him brought to him and said to I just want to hear from you. Did is it true that you're not you're not bowing down to our gods and and now the image? And then it's like he gives them a second chance. So he says, "Now, okay, uh, let's let's just kind of put that back. Let's just kind of forget that. Now, now let me tell you myself. When you hear the sound of all those instruments, then." You are, you are to fall down and worship the image. And if you do, very good. We'll just forget that that other ever happened. But then he says, if you don't, if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And this is such a terrible verse. Then what God, little g, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Oh, you talk about somebody who is, thinks he's God himself. 
you know, when you're thrown into the fire, there isn't a God that can rescue you. I mean, little G, there is, because that's all the gods he knows. And there isn't a God who can rescue you from my hand. In other words, I'm more powerful than the gods of this world. That's, that's, the, that's the kind of man we're dealing with here. And you think heart condition doesn't, doesn't show? And so, you know, um, he, he lays it on the line, he thinks. But I don't think he is expecting what he's going to hear next from these three young men. Because remember like Daniel last week, how calm. Remember how he talked with, with, with tact and with wisdom. And it just sounded like he just spoke calmly. And then when he walked right into the presence of the king, that took such strong courage. But it was confident. He was so confident of who God was, his God. And that enabled him to just take on this impossible task because he knew God is bigger than the impossible. See, isn't that our goal? Don't you want to be like that, that, that you believe your God is, is sovereign and that he's in it all and there's a reason why he's in it all? And, and he can, he can, he's bigger than the impossible and, and his will is perfect and all he asks of us is that we trust him, not understand. Most of the time we don't. But just trust him anyway. Because here, now you're going to hear this answer from these three men. Now, did any of you think, huh, where's Daniel in this chapter? Where is Daniel? You know, and, and you know, did he know that this was going on? I mean, you'd think he would had to know what was going on, that the, that the edict was out, that everyone had to bow down to this. You know, he obviously had to see that 90-foot image. And so where was Daniel in this? And, uh, and maybe you questioned, maybe you thought, well, you know, I'll just come tonight and Linnell will tell us. Well, Linnell's not going to tell you because she doesn't know. I mean, the Bible doesn't tell us where Daniel is. So maybe, you know, just maybe, and this is just mine, this is just my thought, that this was a lesson. How often don't we, when we, when we hit a difficult time, how easy it is to go running to a person. Oh, so-and-so will help me. I'm going to tell them. It's so easy to listen to them and not go straight to our Bibles or straight to God. And these men, you know, maybe, maybe Daniel was out of town. I don't know. But maybe it was these three men had to totally rely on God and God alone. That's not such a bad lesson to learn, is it? I know so often we want to be able to talk to somebody that will talk back at us and we can touch and they can hug us and they can tell us that it's all going to be okay and it's not your fault. And, you know, we want affirmation. But sometimes I think the Lord wants us to find out that we don't need to go to anyone but our Bibles to him and he is all we need. He is enough. 
a very valuable lesson there. So that's just my perception, but um, I don't know where Daniel is. But anyway, these three men, these three men have the same kind of courage and trust in, in their God just like Daniel did. So listen to their reaction when, when they kind of been um, told by the king, you do it or else. They replied in verse 16, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. We don't, we don't even need to defend ourselves in this matter. Because when, when you are given this kind of ultimatum, our natural human nature is to defend ourselves. I mean, and, and I couldn't help but, you know, kind of write down, because I'm thinking as a human being, and uh, it would have been so easy to come up with excuses, you know, that you could kind of, you know, barter with the Lord about, you know. I mean, you know, maybe, you know, could it be that they said, really, you know, let's just do it because he can use us so much more alive than if we were dead. Isn't that a good one? I mean, that sounds like a really good excuse. I mean, we're much better. We can do much more work for him alive than did. And then here's another one that I thought was really quite practical and good. Never once did they say we had to renounce our God. I mean, so if we, you know, just bow, you know, maybe just for a minute, just for maybe two minutes, just so that, you know, they could see that we bowed and yeah, but, but we know, we know that that's nothing. You know, even that sounds practical. Even that sounds like that's not so bad. Or how about this one? Oh, God will understand. God will understand. He will know that we didn't have joys. You know, and that sounds pretty good too. But they didn't. They didn't come up with excuses. They didn't, they didn't put up their dukes and try to, try to defend themselves. They didn't even call out a protest to make, you know, to kind of defend their principle and their, you know, let's get a bunch of people on our side and then we could protest and, and make our point of view known. No, they just quietly, they just quietly were obedient to the Lord and trusted him. And so they said with all confidence, we don't have to defend we don't have to defend ourselves on this. Verse 17. So if you do, if you do throw us into the blazing fire, the God we serve, capital G, the God we serve is able to save us from it. He's able. He's able to save us. They don't know if he is or not, but they do know they serve a God who is able. It kind of reminds me of the leper when he came to Jesus. Remember when he said, he did say, Lord, if you can, will you heal me? He had the faith knowing, of course he can. But he said, if you are willing and, and this is the kind of faith Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have. They, they know that God is 
able to save them. He can do it. He's God. He's sovereign. He can do anything. So they know he's able. And he can rescue us from your hand. But even if he does not. See, this is real faith, isn't it? Just plain believing without seeing. They know that no matter what happens to their exterior, they know that the part that they have fed, that they have, that they have been trained to love the Lord, the sovereign, the almighty, the all-powerful, the one and only God who never changes. They have learned that. And what's in that heart, that kind of heart condition, will come out with this kind of confidence and this kind of wording. Oh, he's able. But if he doesn't, oh, king, we want you to know that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. So this is just the way it is. And, and I don't think that they just said this shouting either. I mean, look, at this is just a confident, bold belief. We know our God so well. And he, he, his body can go up in a puff of smoke, so to speak. But we know that however he decides to use this for his glory, we are not. We're not coming up with these, these excuses no matter how good they are. We're not, we're not going to do excuses. We're just not going to bow because we were taught that we were never to bow down to any graven image. No other gods. You shall have no other gods. They knew the Ten Commandments. Then Nebuchadnezzar, he was so furious. He was furious. You thought he was furious before, but he's really furious now. See, because nobody with the kind of opinion of himself that, he, that Nebuchadnezzar has wants three, three young punks, so to speak, telling him no. It's not going to happen. And so, you know, he, he's just, he is better than Hobbes. And look at it also said that his attitude toward them changed. His whole attitude toward them changed. Because, you know, in the first chapter, oh, he saw, you know, what fine specimens they are. And, oh, yeah, we want them a part of the, the palace. And we want, you know, you know they're good looking. They, they um had a lot of intellect, they were strong, and they were without blemish, I mean, defect, and I mean, he, he, he liked them, oh yeah, they were hand-picked. Last week, I mean, it was very obvious that, you know, he liked them because, you know, of what Daniel did, and then Daniel requested that they be put in position. And so, you know, yeah, of course, yes, you, you men are just what I want. You're just what I need and that kind of thing. And now, all of a sudden, his attitude toward them changed. And why? Because he didn't, they didn't do what he wanted them to do. He ordered the furnace. See how it just gets worse. 
I mean, you talk about out of control. Now it's way out of control. Now, you know, it, the furnace is hot enough to incinerate a body. But, you know, now, you know, just because he's so mad, he says, okay, we want it seven times hotter than usual. And he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them in the blazing furnace. I have to say, I smiled at that because, you know, by now, to me, he is such a joke. And he is strong so hard, you know, now he's getting his strongest soldiers. And, and there he's, those strong soldiers will tie those ropes so tight that there's no way these three as strong and as, you know, handsome and, and, and as, you know, intellectual and as, you know, without defect, all that. As strong as they are, you know, these stronger soldiers are going to tie those ropes so tight. And then, and then I'm going to have those strong soldiers just throw them into the furnace because, you know, they probably will kick and scream and, you know, try to you know, fight their way out of this. See, this is just how limited this rotten heart condition is because, you know, he... He's thinking, I'll get my strongest guys, and there's no way these three are going to be able to get out of this. And so, verse 21, so these three men, so these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the strong soldiers. I mean, isn't that something? Here he picks the strongest soldiers. And look what happened. These strong soldiers are the ones that, that fell dead. And then it said they took, then the Meshadrach, Meshach, and Abednego um, fell into the blazing furnace. They were firmly tied. And even though these strong soldiers lay dead, they fell into the furnace. So there's no doubt they're in there. And I will give, I will give Nebuchadnezzar that white space between 23 and 24. I'll give him that little white space to say, show them, show them who's boss, show them who is sovereign, show them who's really God of this world. Show them, I, that's, I just give them that white space there. Because look at in verse 24, or 20, yeah, um, verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped up. It's like all of a sudden he looked into that furnace after he had some gloat time probably. He looked into that furnace and he leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw in the fire? Weren't there three? And we tied them up. And they replied, certainly, O king. He said, well, look, I see four men walking around. Isn't this just the greatest story? Because Nebuchadnezzar, he's counting them, one, two, three, four. And, and then they're walking, and my strongest soldiers bound them. So I know, how can this be? 
thought about that, you know, especially when I read the verses that when they came out of the furnace, well, they came out of the fire, they, no fire had harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed, their robes were not scorched, they didn't even smell of fire. So there wasn't anything that burned in there except one thing. There was only one thing that that, that seven times how did the normal furnace burn, and that was those ropes that bound them. And they were wandering around set free. And I couldn't help but think, okay, Lord, is, is that a lesson for me to know that sometimes we can be so bound in our sin and we can feel so trapped and we feel that sin is so much bigger than us and it's just entrapped us and there's no way out. And then we realize this is what the cross did. This, the cross, what Christ did on that cross, he set us free Free from the sin. Our sin has been bought and paid for. It's under the blood. And now we can live. You know, I go back to that, that heart condition thing. I know I always will because it's so important. But this week I was thinking, about, you know, in our physical bodies, our heart, what does our heart do? It pumps life-giving blood through our whole body, through the organ, to the organs, and when, when that blood stops flowing, can't give that life-giving blood to the, our bodies, then that's when our body dies. And then I think, you know, uh, that's why it's our soul, in other words, called our heart. Because, you know, once it's been set free by the blood of Christ, that life-giving blood thought, there's the, you know, I still think, I love the song I always used to sing, the blood will never lose its power. So, all right, now, um, Nebuchadnezzar is asking the question, you know, I, I, see the, I see a fourth one, and he looks like a son of the gods. Now, you know, remember, he doesn't really know what he's talking about. All he knows is that this fourth one looks different. This fourth one does not resemble the other three. And, you know, we all know that, that Jesus was. And, but every once in a while, I think we forget when there's glimpses of Jesus in the Old Testament. We have to remember he was not born one Christmas morning as a baby. I mean, he was, but, you know, that wasn't the beginning of his existence, we're reminded in John 1, in the beginning, in the beginning, and I don't know how far you want to go back to the beginning, beginning of beginning, I guess. In the beginning was the Word, and that's Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He's God. And we see a glimpse. You bet he looks different than the other three. He's going to be our saviors in the, in the next hundreds of years. He was promised. And we know that that promise was fulfilled. But right now, we see him in his incarnate self. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace, and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and 
all those rulers, all those different, you know, leaders, all they all gathered around and crowded around, and, and they probably couldn't believe what they saw. I mean, how do you get out of something like that? Verse 28, then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel, rescued his servants. They trusted him, defiled the king's command, and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Well, I got to give him that. He spoke the truth. And he admitted that, that these three stood up to him and wanted to worship their God and no other. I think there's a lesson there. I mean, our God is a jealous God. I always wondered what that meant. I sure do understand it now. That's where the word jealousy is, jealous is appropriate because he will not share worship with anything or anyone. And how often we put our trust and our faith in things of this world. And, and now we depend on our government or leaders or whatever and think that, oh dear, it's just not going to work. And when are we going to learn that we're sovereign and he's in it all. And we're, we're living in a Babylon I think, I think that what we see going on in this world today, we're living in Babylon. And, and, you know, we have to look at this story and are we one of these four men living in this Babylon? Are we willing to let our light shine, our testimony glow? Do we have a story to even tell because we know what that cross has done for us and who our Savior is and, and who our God is. He's supreme. He's one and only. And he's sovereign. You see glimpses throughout all of these chapters, these three chapters we've done. You've seen glimpses of God in it all. But guess what? That's exactly what he's like in our lives. He's in it all. So he admitted. He said, okay, they... they Trusted in their God, and they decided to worship him. And therefore, verse 29, Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces, and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Did you think that this this Nebuchadnezzar has something with cutting into pieces. I mean, he just must like to do that. And seeing the houses turn into rubble. You know, maybe that's, that's what he thinks is his, you know, his big old, you know, big stick. Cut you into pieces, you know. I don't know, I thought, man, you just don't get it. You can't, you can't force people to come to the Lord. You can't, I mean, I'm going to put a decree and everybody, you know, now all of a sudden they don't have to bow to that 90-foot statue. Now you bow down to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God. Now, that's not the way our God wants worship. You don't do it that way. You know, he doesn't 
pull people by the hair and make it happen. No, it comes by invitation. He invites. He says, come, come to me. He gently says, here is the gospel. Here is salvation for you. He doesn't make it happen. It's our call. I'll tell you, there's a few people that I would just love to drag by the hair if that could be possible. Because they're just not thinking straight. People that don't come to Jesus, you think, why Why wouldn't you? Maybe you just need a little help. Let me just pull you to. But that's not how it works. No, what we do is what those three did. You live it, you dare speak it, and you stand up for it. But you then become a testimony and let others watch and ask questions. And as Peter would say, be ready with an answer when they ask you why you are the way you are. That's how people come to know Christ. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. See, now, you know, now they're back to their places again. That's something. After all that, now they're back where they were. You know, I just have to, uh, there's a couple of things I want to say yet tonight about the fact that they were not ashamed. They were not ashamed of God. They didn't make excuses. They were not ashamed. And, you know, Jesus talked about people being ashamed. In fact, he said, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, I will then be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. And then he says in Matthew 10, pretty much the same thing. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So he really takes serious the fact. And you say, well, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of him. Well, anytime we keep our mouth shut, anytime we back away, anytime we don't dare stand because we're afraid of what they're going to think of us or whatever, we are ashamed. And the contrast is what Paul said in Romans 1.16. He He said it just perfectly. And it was because of all what he's been through. When he wrote the book of Romans, he had been around the block. He had been through a lot of living and left for dead and ship. You know, he he had been through a lot of experiences, shipwrecks and everything. And what he had learned from it all was when he, with all confidence, wrote that letter to the people of Rome and said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of of Jesus because it is the power of God to give salvation to anyone who wants to believe. I'm not ashamed, he says. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because I know what it was. I thought religion was the answer. I thought being a smart Pharisee and being intellectual and being able to stand in the synagogue and and to proclaim words and and to recite scripture. But I never met Jesus, and he changed my life. And I have eternity with him now. I am not ashamed. How could I ever be ashamed of the gospel? It saved me.
read something by Charles Spurgeon this week, and he said, there is coming a day that the one ashamed of Christ, he himself now will be ashamed. He will, he will want to hide his guilty head. And then there will be people watching, and they'll say, look at him, the traitor who denied the Lord, who spit at the cross. And then he goes on and says, if that's you, please come to your Redeemer. Please get to know your Redeemer and humbly seek his forgiveness who is waiting to forgive you. I mean, you know the words of Jesus. He says, I will, I will forgive any sin, even if you blaspheme my name, even if, you, if you're ashamed of me. But then you come to know me and you realize what you have done and you come in repentance, I will forgive. The only sin that I will not forgive is the, the answer, no. I won't forgive those who say, no, I don't need a Savior. But any, any other sin, no matter what we've done, it just, it just really counts out any person that says, well, I'm just too bad. There's no way. No, he forgives any sin, but it also, it also reminds those who think they are so good. And they don't have to humbly come before a cross. They also show that all that verse also shows that, that there is going to be consequences and not good ones. You know, I went to Revelation. Last week I went to Revelation 19 and, you know, kind of compared that. And this week I went to Revelation 13 because, you know, I kind of looked. And you can take this for what it's worth. But I kind of couldn't help but see the correlation a little bit because that Daniel is past, present, and future. So this whole story of Nebuchadnezzar and the furnace and all that, I went to Re Revelation 13 when it talks about the Antichrist and how he builds an image and expects all people to bow down and thought, could Nebuchadnezzar be used as a reminder to us that there is going to it's going to come around again, and there's going to be someone like a Nebuchadnezzar again who is going to build a statue and a, a religion and command everyone to worship him. Could the fiery furnace be the great tribulation? And could those three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Bengo, represent the people who do come to know Christ during the Great Tribulation? Oh, they'll be martyred, but there is going to be opportunity. But could they represent those who come to know Christ then? And, and what about the ones, those, those executioners, those, those strong soldiers that fell dead? Doesn't, couldn't that be just when he strikes everyone dead, all the nations that don't believe him. And then this, this one I know might be a little far-fetched, but could the fact that Daniel's not there because Daniel represents that, he represents the church that will be taken up before this happens. Oh, isn't that your vote? And I love that verse in Thessalonians. When Paul writes, this is how you comfort one another. 
when the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will rise first and then we which are alive and remain will be caught together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Paul says, comfort one another with these words. You, the believer, the church, the child of God, we have nothing to worry about. We have everything to gain. We serve a sovereign God. He's in it all. And he's bigger than the fiery furnace. And I want to end with this verse in Isaiah chapter 43. I tell you all the time, keep a bookmark in that chapter because sometimes when, when life throws you a curve or you're in the middle of a fiery furnace and you think there is just no way out, yet you're supposed to go to your Bible, I don't know where to go. Let your Bible fall open to Isaiah 43 because this is what the Lord says. It is so wonderful to put your name in there. I have formed you, Linnell. I have created you, Linnell. I have redeemed you, Linnell. I summon you by name. You are mine. And when you go, when you go through the waters, I'll be there. And when you go through the rivers, they will not tower over you. And when you go through the fire, you will not be burned. For I am your God, your Savior. Now, what more do you need to hear than that? And I think he, he uses those three waters, rivers, and fire. I think he knows that, you know, sometimes our problems, our trials, well, they're, they're not real big, but they're still problems. And so he says, I'm there, I'm there. And then sometimes you're, they're, they're, they're really quite bad because you feel like they're gonna, the, the waters are just going to overpower you. And you said, no, no, the rivers won't overpower you. Those trials won't overpower you. You keep looking to me. Keep your faith bigger than your feelings. They won't overpower you. But then he says, the fire. You know, the fiery furnace, when it, there is just, it's just unreasonable, it's unfathomable, there's no way out of this. And he says, you will not be burned because I am your God. I am your Savior. Heavenly Father, thank you for this truth. May we feel the strength and the power of this chapter that it is for us. And that no matter what, our hope is in Christ alone. And may we take an evaluation of our heart condition. Are we trusting? Do we have little G gods in our life that we're trusting too much? Or are we like the three who dare stand and say, you are sovereign, you're in it all. I might not understand or even like it, but I will not bow to any other God. I trust you. You are always up to something, and it's always for my good. So may we take these lessons and not just say, well, that was, that was a pretty good lesson. I didn't know all that. And No, Lord, you expect us to hear these words, but then do them. Make them a part of our heart condition. Father, I knew it. I knew that we would leave differently tonight than when we came. Because we've been in your presence. 
We have heard from you. You've commanded. You have, you have, you have given us such great instruction and examples. This is not hard to understand. And may we not be like those followers of Jesus that left because it was just getting little too close. It was just getting a little too convicting. Father, may we never run from it. May we be challenged by scripture and then let it change us. Father, as we sing this last song, may we sing it because it is the story of Jesus that we can put all our hope in. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.